Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Amy Willens, and I am a co-director and founder of the UCI Forum for the Academy and the Public. Since 2014, the Forum for the Academy and the Public at UCI has organized these pop-up gatherings on campus on globally meaningful breaking news stories, as well as large annual conferences inviting national and international figures from professors, policymakers, to pol political cartoonists, artists, and poets. Um, and they come to discuss issues like climate change, artificial intelligence, the future of the truth, and most recently, resurgent empires. Um, we're so pleased to partner with Sokolov Public Square for tonight's program, and it's an honor for me to introduce our moderator, Cal Rostiala. Uh, Cal Rostiala is the Promise Institute Professor of International and Comparative Law at UCLA and the director of the UCLA Berkel Center for International Relations. He's the author of The Absolutely Indispensable Man, Ralph Bunch, The United Nations, and The Fight to End Empire, which was published last year and just got a great review from Foreign Affairs. And his previous books include Does the Constitution Follow the Flag and The Knockoff Economy. Uh, he has been a visiting professor at Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Princeton, and many other universities throughout the world. And I'm going to now pass this over to Cal. Cal? Thank you, Amy. Thanks, Amy. Good evening, everyone. So it's a great pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be moderating our, uh, our panel tonight. I'm going to briefly introduce our panelists. I think everyone knows that we have a mix of on stage, uh, the two of us, uh, and two Zoom. So I'm going to start with Leila Lalami, was born in Rabat, educated in Morocco, Great Britain, and the US. She's the author of five books, including The Moore's Account, which won the American Book Award and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction. Her most recent novel, The Other Americans, was a national bestseller and a National Book Award finalist. Her essays and columns have appeared in The Nation, The Guardian, Harper's, New York Times. She's been awarded fellowships from the British Council, the Fulbright Program, the Guggenheim Foundation, and is currently Distinguished Professor of Creative Writing at the University of California, Riverside, and she lives here in LA. Technically, I know it's Santa Monica, but we'll call it LA. Uh, Serge Atukwe Klati is an artist who primarily works with found materials from his hometown of Accra, Ghana, in order to create a dialogue with the city's cultural history and identity. Utilizing everyday objects such as discarded, I'm going to mispronounce this, Kufour gallons, car tires, Serge is going to explain this later, and recycling boat wood as his canvas, he inscribes patterns and texts that uplift the miscellaneous materials into symbols of Ghana's vernacular economic system of trade and reuse. Throughout his work, the celebration of the yellow gallon containers, initially used as cooking oil uh, canisters and then recycled to collect water or fuel, stems from his desire to find ways to inspire people to work with plastics and to recycle them in creative ways. This has been a prominent motif throughout his work, and the artist has named this distinctive practice Afro-Gallonism. Finally, Pankaj Mishra was born in North India in 1968, sorry, 69. Uh, I just aged you a year, Pankaj. He graduated with a bachelor's degree from Allahabad University before completing his MA in English literature at Nehru University in New Delhi. He's the author of many books, most recently Run and Hide, published in 2022, 
he writes literary and political essays for many outlets, including the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, The Guardian, The New Yorker, The London Review of Books, and Bloomberg View. In 2009, he was nominated a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and in 2014, he received Yale University's Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize. So distinguished group, interesting and eclectic group. We're going to talk about the question of does decolonization explain everything? Um, I'm going to guess that the answer is not going to be uh, yes, but there is quite a bit that it does explain. And I think the, the premise of the entire panel is to really start to think about the meaning of decolonization and to make it legible for many of us, and I don't want to speak for the audience here, but I think many people in this country in particular don't fully appreciate the significance of the colonial experience and the process of decolonization as a political revolution, as a revolution of racial justice, as an economic revolution, and as something that continues to reverberate in the 21st century. So uh, we'll try to unearth a lot of those themes in our discussion. So I want to begin and encourage uh, Pankaj uh, to start us off. Um, Pankaj, could you maybe just begin by giving us your take on what decolonization means, what it does explain, and, and maybe even what it doesn't? Thank you, Cal, for, for the question. I mean, obviously, we, we are now using the word decolonization in a variety of contexts, uh, decolonizing the syllabus, decolonizing um, you know the, the fashion industry, and so on and so forth. The other day, I was in a car with a friend, uh, and I changed the Google Maps voice on it from English UK to English uh, with an Indian accent. And my friend said, uh, "You've just decolonized Google Maps." So you know, a lot of, lot of context in which this is being used. But we have to remember that the original uh, meaning of the word had to do with the reclaiming of sovereignty by a large part of the world's population. National sovereignty, along with the freedom and dignity that those countries, that those societies felt they had been denied for decades, if not centuries, by a tiny minority of white majority nations in, in, in Western Europe and North America. So that was what the struggle was about. It started in the, in the, in the 20th century, in the mid 20th century. It took many decades for it to be completed. Some might say it's still not complete because obviously there are minorities there are nation states which still feel themselves oppressed. There are minorities in, in, in Western nations, uh, racial minorities, uh, who feel uh, quite rightly that they still haven't recovered from these you know, decades uh, uh, long uh, rule by uh, essentially you know, white supremacists. So decolonization uh, now is not only about regaining political sovereignty because that was regained a long time ago. It's also a battle for justice and dignity in other realms. So, you know, when we're talking about the intellectual realm, uh, how essentially so much of the knowledge that we have today about just about everything, whether it's history or sociology, is essentially knowledge accumulated from a particular perspective for a particular set of interests, and that has to change. So we have to learn to look at the world 
the way the world looks to say someone in India or someone in China, and that's partly what decolonizing the the, the syllabus means. Um, you know, obviously, it's such a broad phenomena, and because it's happening after such a long period in which white majority nations or, or, or white people in general uh, enjoyed a kind of uninterrupted hegemony. Uh, decolonization poses a lot of challenges to people who have been power, powerful for a very long time. And so there's a lot of resistance to, to uh, you know, uh, this, 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 this process. A lot of resistance from people who don't want to change, who don't want to look at the world the way someone in India or China might see it. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of the struggles today uh, the culture wars in in the United States and, and and in Western Europe can be explained by the fierce resistance that is coming from uh, societies, from people in societies who don't want to change, who don't want decolonization to go ahead. But I think you know the problem is that it is an irreversible process. It's a process led by a majority of the world's population, in which a majority of the world's population has a stake. And I think uh, it's also long overdue that we learn about the ways in which other people have lived, the other ways in which they've organized their societies. Uh, and I think you know this is absolutely hugely important, especially as we as we live in the uh, in in a, in a sort of globalized world. Um, so decolonization, in other words, is something that now really affects every aspect of our public existence. And uh, once you start to understand this as a historical intellectual phenomena, then I think many, many bewildering things in the world today start to make sense. They become, they can become much, much clearer. And I think we should, we should go in, in, in on and discuss some of these, some of these issues. In the 50s and 60s, there was this distinction that was often drawn between uh, blue water or salt water colonies and those that were not. In other words, adjoining territories, including perhaps ones the United States had conquered, uh, wouldn't count as a colony and would not be something to be decolonized, whereas something that was distant, that was an ocean away, Goa, Morocco, places like this would somehow count. And of course, countries tried to manipulate that, that standard, but you're absolutely right, it is often viewed that way. Um, so let's turn to that. Um, and, you know, Leila, your work, you write, uh, you, you've written in a number of your books about issues related to the colonial experience, to migration, which we can see as a reverberation. Um, and so I just wanted to give you the opportunity to kind of unpack some of the themes, and you could really choose any of your novels um, and or your essays to talk about that, but how you see those continuing processes, you yourself, uh, have, have, in a sense, been a migrant. And so how do you see that reflected through the themes of tonight's panel? Well, I look at these in terms of, I look at the issue as a question of storytelling because I, I mean, my background is on a novelist, so I, I kind of look at the stories that we tell ourselves about all this. Um, and I remember when I, so as some of you heard, I was born and raised in Morocco, which was a French colony from 1912 to 1956, so just about 44 years. Um, and I remember when I was growing up, my grandmother, my grandmother would tell this story about how she was walking down the street carrying my uncle, who was still, um, he was still an infant, 
And my grandmother was very dark-skinned, and my uncle was very light-skinned. And so when she was walking down the street, she was stopped by a French woman who said, that's not your baby. You've stolen this French child, presumably, <laughs> from, from, from his parents. And it was, you know, obviously my grandmother was terrified. My grandmother does not, you know, communicate well or did not communicate well in French. And, so she was terrified, and the woman would only be um, calmed when she grabbed my grandmother's breasts and saw that my grandmother was still nursing. So this sort of attitude where you can just help yourself to another person's, like violate a person's uh, physical integrity was very much the kind of story that I grew up with about French power. Then in my father's generation, I remember him telling us stories about the bosses that he worked for, bosses who were French, and he felt very much throughout his career that he was often passed over for things like promotions and whatnot. And then when I was growing up, I did not have, fortunately, those, exper those experiences, but I remember when I was a child going to the bookstore and looking for something to read, I would find that most of the books that were available to a child were in French, and so much of my early exposure to literature was in the colonial language, even though I was born and raised in a completely independent country. So those three stories, one that is basically a story of physical compliance, one that is a story of economic compliance, and one that is a story of cultural compliance, are all stories that we grew up with. And all of them were driving to the same point, which is the fact that we were supposed to yield at all times to the sort of the, you know, the metropolis. We were in the periphery. Um, so it's, you know, for me, it's not just an intellectual process. It's not something that we can just talk about, you know, decolonization as a political thing uh, that happened in 1956, but as a long process that affects entire generations, even though those generations may never have lived in a colony. Um, and I remember when I moved to the United States um, just about 30 years ago, I moved here to go to USC and when the word decolonization would ever come up, it was always discussed in terms of countries like mine, where you know you were you know under French rule. But even the United States itself started out as a colony, right? Um, and you could look at what has so the, the entire history of what we've seen in the United States from 1776 onward as a long protracted process of decolonization. So at the founding of the nation, there was an opportunity <laughs> during the writing of the Constitution, for example, to give, to really make it a decolonization process, to grant everybody who is in this country the same rights, protections, and liberties, and that is not what happened. The, the colony became independent, but it continued in a way as a colony in the sense that a certain group of people had the rights of citizenship, namely um, free white persons, um, and then certain rights that came with that, such as the right to citizenship, to, to voting, I'm sorry, were further restricted to propertied white men. So if you look at the process over the next 200 years, it's a slow process of expanding those rights to other groups. And even today, we are not completely done with that 
process um, here in the U.S. even. I mean, I completely agree, and you're underscoring the elements of race and power that are obviously central, but I would go even further and say, you know, the history of the United States is one in which, first of all, though we didn't make Native nations colonies in the traditional sense, we certainly colonized them in another sense, Absolutely. conquered them, took their land, continued to do so. We just gave a land acknowledgement about that fact, right. that continuing um, process, which has not been reversed. Uh, and then, of course, the United States itself was a colonizer. And so people you know, often forget we still have places around, whether it's Samoa, Puerto Rico, et cetera, yeah. all of which have, you could argue, maybe even DC, have an element of uh, colonial power to them. And certainly for those outlying territories, still are treated as such, as a matter of law. So um, it's not a process that has ended. And it's one that uh, I think many Americans don't appreciate fully how much we have done. Hawaii, many such examples. Right. Um, so, Serge, uh, I know we're going to have some, some of your artworks up. I'm going to say I've known Serge for uh, a few years now. I uh, am proud to say that I have one of his pieces. I don't own it, sadly, but I do have it hanging on my wall. And uh, it's really amazing work. And so he's going he's gonna to give us a little press about some of the themes in his work. So take it away, Serge. Yeah, so... Um my work is based on migration and displacement. So I, I mainly focus on the community because I believe that to decolonize people mindset is to engage them in a process where they realize that, you know, it's a very basic way of understanding your space. Because um, if you talk about can decolonization explain everything, I would say no, because colonization is a weapon of capitalism and it's colonizing a country to grow on their own and adding value to it. So I believe that um, decolonization is something that can be very practical within the immediate space because uh, I follow this mantra, think global as local. So I focus on the community because my community aspect where I live, where I buy food from the streets. So I don't go to fancy places to spend money to buy expensive because I need to know who cooks the food, the farmer who grows my crops, you know. So um, I've done quite a few projects and I'd like to share, you know, the background of some of the projects. Can I have some of the works on display? They're not up. Do we have... Do we have those images ready to go? There we go. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Serge. We have, we have the first one up. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah, so this is a project called Follow the Yellow Brick Road, which is um, reference to Wizard of Oz, and it's about property conflict. You know, so there are so many properties in the country, which is Africa, where I'm from, Ghana, that are mostly verbal agreements um properties there's no documentation you know so i'm interested in using this community activist activists to sort of demarcate the property by using the work uh, my work as a reference point so this project mainly focused on demarcating the property because over 200 years ago my family doesn't have documentation to prove as a reference of ownership so i need to find ways to use my work as a as a reference to demarcate the property so that that can be used as evidence. So with 
the community engagement, there are people who knows about the family history 200 years ago, but based on the several approach to the you know materials and installations, you know, people come out to tell the, where my family um, sort of demarcation lies because you know I use the work as a reference to demarcate the property because there's no documentation. And because we come, I come from my um my family come from a migration background, you know, from the same city, migration become demerit over years, you know, based on how European settling on African coast has influenced them in a way. So uh, my family doesn't have a paperwork to defend the property. So I have to use the work as a reference to demarcate the property so that it could be used as evidence in court. Even after 200 years ago, we are going to court to defend the place because we, the community, which is Labadi, realized that we are not from that part of the city. You know, we are migrants. So I need to find ways to sort of, you know, so I think that, um, the power of decolonization lies between the mindset of people. It's mindset. It's how we live our life day to day, you know, because we need to find ways to um, make people understand, you know, where they get um, their food from, where they get their clothes. We are not even looking at the Western, like in terms of fast fashion. We are not looking at fast fashion where you think about foreign designers, but being able to acquire encourage local designers, you know, local creative people to sort of um, help them with the production and, you know, patronizing even within your immediate space. This is um, Sea Never Dries, which is actually, it's a piece that has traveled from Accra to New York, um, to London, and then to India, you know. So this is a process where Sea Never Dries is actually um, a metaphor that is used by local fishermen so no matter how the fish can be, the sea can be empty, but it will never dry. You know, it's a metaphor that tells you that, you know, no matter how life is, you know, there's a way to, to survive, you know. So this is a piece that was shown in another installation in London and then traveled to, 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 um, to India. So um, in my practice, I've realized that, you know, migration is very keen and I've, I've traveled around the world. I've experienced different um, spaces, different challenges, but I always come back to the community because that's how we inspire the community to sort of understand the migration issue of an African who traveled back to. So this is tribal tribulation, which is focused on, um, it's a research base between the history of British and Ghanaians. You know, there was a history of migration, trade and travel. So I made this, which is based on sound because I believe 400 years, um, slavery, history of slavery is, is written by, you know, people, it's told generation after generation, but I believe that the sound of the ocean today can be used as a archival tool to understand what happened 400 years ago. So I recorded the sound at a particular time in four different forts and castle, which was built by the British. So I spent, you know, an hour from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. because when you go there, although the place has the space has been given to the local people to fish and survive, but there's always a struggle. The ocean, in here listening to the ocean and listening to the fishermen pulling it, I believe that those are memory, sound of memory that can be used as a remembrance of what happened 400 years ago. So I explore sound as evidence of history. Yeah. So the final image.
Yeah, Gold Force. Gold Force is actually um, an installation in Saudi Arabia. And what I'm interested in, you know, desert for Africans means migration, struggle, uh, displacements, you know. So in this space, in Saudi, it has nothing like that. It's a place to, you know, explore nature, to appreciate nature. So I wanted to use the word because this is actually a piece that was built by the community. We have all age aspect, different people working on the on, on the on, on the piece. And the piece travel from, you know, we actually dumped this the piece in an ocean for a couple of days because we wanted to see how, you know, the sea from Accra, Ghana collects, you know, the piece collects the sea water as well as the sand, the salt into Saudi desert. You know, so I believe that it brings life to the space, not just a space of migration and and displacement, but it actually brings life because it's a gold force. And on migration, traveling on the desert, the most important thing you need is water. You know, so I use this work as a reference of gold force. So when there's a gold force, there's no such thing as migration because you have like a very rich um, resources. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Serge. So really for any of you, it, it's, uh, it's obviously been a theme that's come up repeatedly about migration. And in some ways we're here in Los Angeles, um, Pankaj is in London, Serge is in uh, Ghana, though you've spent a su substantial amount of time here in LA as well. Um, what, I guess, what do you see as the links, and again, for any of you, between the colonial experience and migration and the way in which the world is obviously a more globalized world, we're able to move around, we're doing this with people in, in uh, three different continents. Um, is that a sort of salutary side of the colonial experience? Is it totally unrelated in the sense that migration occurs even without um, a colonial uh, tie? Though we often do see people going from, let's say, Morocco, if you go to France, there's a large number of Moroccan immigrants. Those kind of ties between periphery and metropole are very common. So I just would be curious to hear your thoughts on how you see uh, colonization, decolonization, and migration connecting. Well, may, may, I, may I say something? I think um, migration, yes, definitely. But I think the the perhaps a more precise word to describe uh, the effects of decolonization would be large-scale uprooting. So people who could really only find contentment or who previously found contentment within sort of fixed horizons, you know, within their particular societies. And obviously, you know, people were migrating, people were traveling before, but there was a tiny minority of people who were even able to do that. With the demand for labor uh, that decolonization, sorry, colonization, uh, and of course, you know, behind it lay capitalism, as Serge pointed out, uh, it demanded labor, it demanded labor in different parts of the world. And so migration became a truly global and mass phenomenon in the last uh, 200 years. Um, and a lot of it was, um, you know, was not voluntary. People were forced to move because conditions became intolerable in their respective societies, in their respective countries. And even when they moved, it was not it did not, they did not particularly improve those conditions in, 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 in other places. So I think, um, I mean, in a way, it started this process, global process that we see today of people moving from one part of the world to another. But it's, you know, leaves open the question. I mean, when you ask, uh, is there a salutary, salutary aspect to that? Um, 
it's really there's very difficult it's very difficult to measure that because you know for much of human history people have lived and died pretty close to where they were born and with colonization we embark upon a completely new experiment in uh, in human history i was going to say that i think that um Migration has always happened. Like, it's the oldest story that we tell about ourselves. Like, if you think about um, Adam being <laughs> kicked out of Eden and becoming a refugee, <laughs> or if you think about Moses, I mean, these are foundational stories for humanity for a reason, because we always move where it is uh, better for us to live. Uh, and so that could be because of climate change, or it could be because somebody figured out how to put together a boat and, you know, wanted to check out what was over on that island yonder, you know? So it's, it has always happened. But with colonization and decolonization, these movements are happening at scale, and they're happening um, uh, uh, in very sort of abrupt ways and sometimes extremely desperate ways. So with respect to the situation that I know best, which is Morocco, um, during the colonial period even, long before the, the, the independence, when, uh, uh, when um, Europe, when the Second World War was over and Paris was, you know, and parts of France were destroyed and needed to be rebuilt, you know, they needed a lot of labor and that labor came from places like Morocco, Tunisia and Algeria and these were workers who were invited to come and help rebuild or invited to come and work in the car factories and that led to a massive economic boom in France called Les Trente Glorieuses, right? So the 30 glorious years leading to this, the mid-70s and Again, with this idea that that people can help themselves to your to to your labor or to your body, it's meant to be exclusive to that, without considering what that the person is an actual person, maybe needs a family and all of that. So of course, it leads to to family migration after that, and then now, of course, we see that during decolonization, we see these massive migratory movements that that have that are taking place long after uh, independence movements and people are coming here for all kinds of reasons, you know, war and, and climate change and, and what have you. So it just seems like it's, it's colonization and decolonization are acting as catalysts and as factors of um, extreme migration. Serge, anything you wanna add on that? He looks frozen. Okay. Well, may I, I think. May I add something to yeah, yeah, what Leila just ahead. said? Well, I think, uh, I mean, two powerful interventions by Leila. And I feel that we need to now connect those, uh, those issues with also, you know, the political situation in our respective countries, where we see a certain kind of anti immigrant rhetoric, uh, where we see the borders, borders being raised, walls being built. Uh, and, you know, the political climate, uh, if one were to define it, uh, I think uh, very, very briskly, you would say that the forces of white supremacy are dominant in a way that they have not been for a very long time. And that is, again, you know, a, a response to this, 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 this sort of enormous process that was basically set into motion by decolonization, ranging from large-scale migration 
to the increasing assertiveness of China. So this particular world, uh, let's call it the white man's world, it was called the white man's world, in which uh, a complete stranger could violate the dignity of Leila's grandmother, uh, a, a world in which white people really, a world that was essentially, you know, owned by white people was ruled for their benefit. That world is 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 now uh, rapidly changing, and I think many of the political reactions that we see in large parts of Western Europe and the United States is a extremely defensive reaction to these widespread changes in the world today. And you know, it's, it's the thinking behind it is like we can go back to being powerful and hegemonic in the way that we once were. So I, I, yet again, you see you know, how decolonization has unleashed forces in the very heart of the modern West, not just in, in remote places in, in Asia and Africa. No, I do agree. And I think it's striking, you know, reading, reading work about politics from the pre-war period, from, let's say, the 1920s or the 1930s, um, when I was studying the, the work of Ralph Bunch, it was really striking to see how overt that racial caste politics to world politics was. It wasn't something that was hidden or it wasn't something that was only elicited by particular politicians in a maybe Trumpian fashion or something who could suddenly draw out something that had been suppressed. It was actually completely out there at every moment. And then somehow through the process of the Second World War and the process of decolonization, that was all sort of suppressed um, in kind of discourse in the West. And it was as if the colonial era had never happened. Um, but of course it had happened and it's still coming back and we're dealing with that uh, reverberation today. Um, so I think we're at our time for audience questions. And those will include ones from all of you in the room as well as online. Uh, so my understanding is, Bianca, will we start with live? Yeah, so we'll start with the first um, online question. So the question is, do you see any similarities with Russia today in regard to the war in Ukraine and the Soviet Union? Also, are there any imperialistic similarities between Russia and the US? Anyone want to take first shot at that? I'm happy to, but. Well, the one thing that, I mean, maybe not Russia, but the Soviet Union was an empire. I mean, it's not as if, you know, it was just Russia itself. I mean, Russia exerted influence over large numbers of territories. And when you look at what's happening in all of them today, you could also talk about decolonization um, from that perspective, which is why I, I think it's fascinating, really, to go back to what Pankaj was talking about earlier with respect to people's around the world, people's opinions about what's happening in Ukraine. It's just fascinating to me how people are connecting that to their own views about what's happening in their countries rather than to uh, the Soviet Union's history and Russia's history and Ukraine's history. So it's really saying something about the, 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 the viewer, I guess, the, the perceiver. Pankaj? Well, actually, I would be interested to know uh, what you think about this issue. Yeah, sure. So I guess I would say I completely agree that Russia is still in many ways an empire, traditionally was an empire. Um, my family, my father was born in Finland. Finland was part of the Russian empire. 
before that, part of the Swedish Empire. So places actually been colonized twice and now eventually became independent. But so the Russian imperial experience is a longstanding one. The Soviet Union had a particular form, but it's still there and it's, it continues on. Um, and in fact, I think all of the great powers in the world have that quality. Um, and so it's, it's interesting how that, going back to our earlier conversation, that isn't the, the frame that people see the war in Ukraine through in the global south, in part because it doesn't fit the long distance blue water model and in part for the reasons that Pankaj gave, of there's this long-standing sense of support that the Soviets had given. Whether that, the degree to which that will carry over will be interesting to see over time, um, because it's of course a long way from the Soviet Union, it's very different, Putin's quite different, um, but that's obviously a huge factor. So um, yeah, I think there's a lot of commonality, and I think large land empires continue to exist. Um, China is certainly one. Um, they're very hard to dislodge. So I, you know, in some ways it's depressing to think about what might happen in Ukraine uh, or here or in China to, to imagine will there be some kind of decolonization movement. Very hard to see that occurring in the way that it occurred in the 50s and 60s. I think it's also, I mean, I feel that Russia, at least current regime, benefits from a very ambiguous position Russia has had between Europe and Asia. Uh, also, this ambiguous position Russia has had in a sort of, you know, across the racial divide. Um, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois said the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. And if that is true, then actually Russia was never quite implicated in racial injustices of the sort that large parts of Asia and Africa suffered. So one reason why people don't really associate it with the kind of colonialism that they uh, had to deal with or they liberated themselves from and are still willing to give Russia a, a, a big pass on, you know, something like Ukraine. That's going to last because when you think about where Russia has positioned itself in places like Syria, it just it, it just makes me wonder how long people are going to continue to view it as some kind of neutral or even progressive force in the decolonization movement. Okay, we have Serge back. Good to have yeah. you back. Uh, yeah, thank you. Good. So, should we go to the next question? Yeah, perfect. Um, just a reminder to our in-person audience, if you have any questions, um, please feel free to line up over here. Um, but in the meantime, uh, I'm going to ask another online question before moving on to our in-person audience questions. Okay, awesome. So for the next one, um, what, are, what are some differences or similarities between American empire and European-style colonialism? Great question. Um, <laughs> I think you should answer that one because it seems like it's... <laughs> so I think the issue of American empire is really a fascinating one. I, I averted earlier to, you know, we actually do still possess territories that right. fit this traditional Absolutely. notion of, of empire. But, you know, certainly amongst historians and, um, you know, other scholars will use the phrase American empire in a more generic way to refer to something like hegemony or domination uh, around the world. And... You know, even in the, the period of decolonization, uh, in the height of it, in the 50s and the 60s and the post-war period, Europeans themselves also saw it this way. And sometimes were very frustrated by the way that the, the Truman administration or Eisenhower would speak about the moral imperative to decolonize and to take a stance, even though we didn't do such a great job of doing that, take a stance in favor of, 
uh, change, and yet somehow always ended up on top, um, economically dominating the world. And even in San Francisco, when the UN Charter is being negotiated, France sees this as a ploy on the part of the United States just to gain control, because of course we're the biggest economy, we're gonna come out on top of that world. And so it's a different form of empire uh, than the one that Churchill or de Gaulle had in mind, but it was still quite powerful. So there's a lot of dimensions to that, but maybe I'll, I'll stop there and, and let any of you three chime in. I think you answered it on my behalf, actually. <laughs> okay, anything else then? I have forgotten the question. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we'll go on to the next one. Awesome. My mind was wandering because I was thinking about a, a completely different um, factor in all this. So. Uh, hello. Uh, uh, my name's Gary O'Connor. Um, would the panelists agree with me that uh, um, the, the, the uh, ability of the British uh, uh, royalty and empire, or whatever, uh, to uh, offload their imperialistic uh, tendencies uh, was uh, useful uh, through the uh, Commonwealth, and it was a stepping stone to allow the countries to uh, accommodate the extra freedom. Um, it's more of a, a huge stepping stone than fascism and non-fascism, which is lots of grey as we're experiencing in this country. But uh, Great, thank you. Well, we have some uh, kind of Commonwealth uh, members on this panel or, or maybe uh, reflecting a Commonwealth world. So um, I'm going to defer that one. Pankaj, do you want to weigh in on the Commonwealth? Yeah, I don't quite understand the question. I mean, is it saying, is he, is the gentleman saying that um, because they were able to channel some of the uh, excessive energies uh, in, let's say, the United Kingdom to places like Australia and Canada, uh, that it was to the benefit of those colonies? Uh, if that's the question, I mean, again, it's very hard to answer. You have to ask the indigenous peoples of those countries, uh, you know, who, who face these very ruthless uh, bunch of people from elsewhere and who were nearly, and in many cases, completely exterminated. So I don't know. I mean, you know, I think Cecil Rhodes has a famous line of his saying, if we don't um, go for empire, we'll end up with civil war at home. Uh, so, you know, empire was seen as a kind of big release valve for, you know, for, for the UK at the time, so they're just letting uh, excess population, and in fact, in, you know, the convict population go out and find lands to conquer and peoples to exploit. Well, what about, I guess maybe this is just different interpretations of the role of the Commonwealth, but I sort of interpreted the question more in the guise of, did the Commonwealth uh, provide an easier exit to empire by uh, sort of being uh -huh. a halfway house? So yes, there's independence, but we're going to continue to have some kind of collectivity. We're going to continue to, you know, work together, play to however you want to characterize the kind of thin ties that the Commonwealth allowed. Was that helpful for the British, perhaps, uh, or even for the newly was, independent states to to have a, a connective tissue? Well, I think it was definitely helpful for the British, uh, you know, to hold on to some kind of a memory of empire, and that was, you know commemorated every time the heads of the Commonwealth came together. But, you know, the Commonwealth is a pretty meaningless institution. And now it's a completely hollowed out institution with the Queen gone. I mean, the Queen was a symbol of continuity. Um, 
but you know nobody really takes the institution seriously we don't really know what it is up to like is there any good that it does or is it just a huge talking shop or a, or again a platform on which um, britain can still pretend to be a, a major power say that there is a kind of equivalent to this in the French-speaking world too, which is the francophonie, and how Macron keeps insisting, he keeps going back to Africa, going and making the rounds, and insisting that it's actually a force for good, and that uh, French would serve as a kind of um, common language for Africans, as if Africans don't have their own languages that maybe might be <laughs> just as suitable to be a common language, and becoming increasingly frustrated with the loss of prominence of, of French as a language of, of um, you know, trade and, and culture within the African continent. So I would say, I would agree with Pankaj that these notions tend to, to um, benefit the, the sort of metropolis more than it does the periphery. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's allows a kind of cultural hegemony to continue. Exactly. That, um, you know, maybe yeah, it has mean, some, some benefits. Serge, please. Yeah, I think I think the UK, which is the British, has a very strong um, influence in, in, in Africa still, you know, because there has been several engagements, especially with um, artistic exchange, you know, where artists travel to the UK for research, you know, British artists come to Ghana. So there's always a way of of sharing information, acquiring knowledge from, especially from Africa, because there are traces of historical faults where, you know, the British come to research, you know, and then, but um, if you, I, I, I spent some time in the Greenwich Museum where you can see um, a lot of archival materials that was engaged in the history of migration, especially within Africa, you know, they have all archives of everything, you know, so it shows the power of the British because they, they are able to use that as evidence of what happened, but whereby in our museums and, you know, there's nothing to show, you know, so I believe that, you know, there's always traces of, um, of power that the British has in Africa, you know, because the fault has been abundant, has been, but there's always a project that lies between the British and, you know, like documenting, you know, after several years, there's always like journalists from the UK coming, you know, interviewing the local people because I, there are people on the coast of Accra which has British, they bear British names. You know, you see Ghanaian having British names. And so you don't really identify them as Ghanaians or they are neither identified as British, but they bear British names. So I think power, it's something, power relationship is something that, can never be washed away, you know, because once there's engagement in past several years, there's always an assistance. So I think that um, Africa still, I think we, I believe that there's still, we feel very, um, very, we don't have control, you know, we still believe that our colonial masters are still our masters till now, you know, we spend so much money going to the UK because we believe that once you speak good English, you are qualified to be in the UK, but there's no um, assurance, you know, you can be denied visa. Migration is still very demerit to people that they colonize, you know, so I think power structures are still existing in, in Africa. Great. Thank you all. So next question, live or? Uh, yeah, live. Yeah, live, per live in person. Yeah. 
So this is a serious question, even though it's set in outer space. I'm, I'm wondering about applying the model of colonialism to if Elon Musk gets us to Mars, because we're going to go other places, and if colonialism is strangers showing up in places they don't own, can we use that lens when there are not other homo sapiens there to be exploited? Because I've heard people talk seriously about getting off the planet, but if we go to a barren place where there is no life, do we still use the same thinking? What kind of model do we apply going forward? to a place where there's no life or single-celled organisms? I would say no, but uh, I'm curious what the others think. I guess my, my own sense would be that inherent in, in the colonial process is some kind of subjugation by a dominant power uh, or a power that's asserting dominance. But I'm curious what all three of you think. Well, I, I hope uh, we can do something to you know, may preserve, maintain life on this planet uh, for the species that we still haven't destroyed, um, rather than go and export our destructive habits to different parts of the parts of the solar system. So yes, the answer is definitely no. Well said. No, I was just going to say it's frightening that the word, the, the name Elon Musk just came up in that sense. I just, nothing good would come out of spatial exploration <laughs> with that gentleman in, in charge of it. All you have to do is look through his Twitter feed to get a sense of how uh, any kind of exploration in which he plays a part um, would sort of unfold. So. Okay, next and question. Think... Oh, sorry, he has Serge. A lot of fans. Yeah, and I think colonization is um, it's an ongoing global project which continues to occupy land, you know. So there's always this power that sort of claims spaces, you know. And it, I think that it's, it's based on power and capitalism. You know, once you have control, you are able to acquire or take over people's land or take a land that belongs to, you know, other people and because you are, have the power you control the land and decide who comes in and what not you know so it's creating spaces that doesn't exist by using power as a mechanism you know yeah so that's what i think and i think um, that if you want to speak of decolonizing the mind then we have to get rid of these this this attachment to power this desire to dominate and learn to live uh, learn to coexist with what we have today. And, you know, I think in that sense, an attitude of humility um, and a sense of, you know, just awe at the world we live in is much, much more necessary than this desire, mad desire to conquer unknown lands, to conquer unknown planets at this point. So we have time for one more question, and then we could close. Hi, uh, my name is Jesse, and thank you for being here. So I'm uh, curious about the power of semantics in this, uh, particularly perhaps from a writing professor and also from Serge. I'm curious on the thoughts on your thoughts between the difference between decolonization and indigenizing. So if these are the same movement, if they should be delineated movements, if the term decolonization is still actually centering the colonizers in the work that we're doing, and if indigenizing is actually bringing to the forefront the people that should be centered. And if 
that matters if for now we need to focus on decolonizing. I even think of Serge's example in saying, well, he buys from local instead of buying from the larger chains because that's a form of indigenizing as well, thinking, acting local. So just curious on your thoughts on that. Thank you. I think that's an excellent point. Uh, so thank you for bringing that up. Um, part of, you know how earlier I said my, I forgot the question? It's because I was actually thinking about how I've been talking about Morocco as a former colony of France and discussing sort of migration and, and the decolonization process and all of that. But Morocco itself is a country where there was, it wasn't, it was a country that had indigenous people before the arrival of the Arabs in the seventh century. Um, and so, but throughout this conversation, I had been talking about it exclusively in terms of its relationship with the former colonial power, namely France. And so to, to your question, so uh, when you look at a situation like Morocco, you know, the indigenous people and the Arabs have, um, intermarried, so most Moroccans are both Amazigh and Arab, but it's really only very recently that things like the language rights of, it, of indigenous people in Morocco have been recognized. And so finally you can walk down the street and actually see signs that are in Tamazigh and Arabic and then somewhere French. <laughs> but, um, but that is a very recent process and that started because of the effort of um, Amazigh activists in that, in that um, direction. So I agree, I think it's an interesting, it's interesting how we can be talking about these processes and inadvertently um, framing them in ways that continue to center um, the, 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 the person holding the power. So thank you for that. Serge, do you want to take a crack at that? Yeah, I think I think also looking at colonization also um, it's about um, beliefs. It's about um, it's about mindset. It's about it's also impacts our healthcare system because we now look into the kind of medicine we we use. You know, like a decolonizing is for me is to be able to use our traditional method as a healing structures. You know, because um, now if you go on the streets, you have all different brands, Western brands, advertising, um, skin, you know, beauty care, you know, you, you, they're not actually black people, you know, they are like foreigners on our billboards in advertising, Western brands, Western um, medicine and all that. So um, for me, I think that, you know, now Africa is changing in a way that we are beginning to realize how sufficient we are as a, um, as a continent where we've used our traditional methods as a healing infrastructure for ourselves. And, and, and that is actually a gradual process. And but it started with your immediate space. So I think that um, decolonization is something that it has to be in our daily day-to-day -day practice. It's the mindset of people. How do you make the people appreciate themselves? who they are and then value what they have, their resources, you know, because um, I think the West has find several ways, you know, though there's like independence, but also they are find ways, like especially there's visa, um, visa lottery, you know, there was a forceful migration where people were moved, forced to migrate, you know, they were used as labor exchange, but now, you know, there's visa lottery where you apply, 
you know, you apply for visa, American lottery, and then you get a chance to go to America. But doesn't allow you to become a free slave or whatever, but you are still under control. So I think um, these infrastructures still exist, but I believe that through, you know, artistic, for me, through my artistic practice, I'm able to create like immediate understanding by decolonizing people's mindset and how they see the West and for them to appreciate, you know, the power that they have and, you know, their resources, yeah. We are at the end of the hour. It's time to close. I want to make sure I don't miss anything in my, my notes uh, here from our staff at Zoclo. So, of course, I want to thank all of you for being here online and live. I want to thank the panelists. I want to let you know that there's a summary uh, of the talk that will be up on ZocaloPublicSquare.org by tomorrow, plus interviews. You can, of course, subscribe to Zocalo's new newsletters, podcasts, social media, etc. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. Thank you, Pat.